Last week, we started this just to kind of give a vision for where we're at in the Word. This is our fall season, so we're settling into the school year and to just being back from camping. And, and uh, we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark. If you've got a bulletin, you'll see our series title right there. It says, The Way of the Lord. And we are going to, as we study this book of the Bible, the Gospel of Mark, we're going to study the life of Jesus so that we can understand what it looks like to follow in the way of the Lord as perfectly exemplified by the person of Christ. We have so many different ways that life is pulling at the seams of all of us. We have a culture that's telling us to live this way. We have religion telling you to live that way. It's getting everywhere. It's like, what do I do with my life? So we're going to study the Gospel of Mark and say, how did Jesus teach us to live? But before we get to the way of the Lord, we actually are going to come up to the the introduction of Jesus coming onto the scene with this idea of preparing the way. So this message title is preparing the way, and it's going to take us through the introduction of the ministry of Christ, which is actually an introduction to the one who prepares the way. It says in verse 1 of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is where it all starts. So every story has a beginning. Every gospel writer gives us a different view, a different lens for the beginning of Christ. And this one gets right to it. They say the beginning is actually a fulfillment of God's preparation. Verse 2, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. As we were singing that last worship song, I love when the worship is so in tune with what the Spirit's about to speak to us, especially when I can sense that we're really just praising God. And so hats off to all of you, just hands in the air, praising God, Waymaker. He's making a way. And then the lyric that that is so important for us to understand, but is always true, even when I don't see it, you're working. And that's true of your life in following Christ, and that's also true of your life before you even knew that you were called to follow Christ. There is always a beginning before the beginning. As I recollect on these last few years, we've been thinking about our marriage coming up on 10 years, and we were talking about we've been living at our house, and the, just we've been in our neighborhood and at this church for such a season. And my, one of my kids came up to me and said, have we always lived in this house? And I said... No, but you, yes. And because every kid thinks that their life, history starts when their life starts, right? And you, you probably do too. It's like, once you come on the scene, that's really when the story gets started. But the reality is, there's a lot of preparation that happens to bring a kid into the world. As you guys all know, God has to bring two people together. I'm not going to get into that now. Just, uh, and, and, and then he lays the groundwork for all of the things that they just bring into He brings them into a world that was totally prepared for them. We had a crib waiting for our kids. We had rooms waiting for our kids. And then we had all of the work of God that had prepared them to come into the world. And this morning, we're going to look at one of the patterns of God that is true of the way that you don't just get physical life, but how you get spiritual life. Because God prepares the work of him coming into your life. He prepares the work of him coming into the world. And every story in the Gospels of Jesus has a moment where we are reminded that Jesus didn't just come on the scene. He had been preparing the people to get ready to receive him. 
In fact, we will celebrate this as a church. December will be our Advent season. And it's this concept that we're going to stir in our hearts that Christ came into the world. And the proper posture is to get our hearts and our minds. And if you guys decorate, your house is ready. So come December, you get all the... Come November, you get all of the decorations out. Some of you are like, I've got it out now. I cannot wait for Christmas. I've already got it all out. That's all a picture of something inside of us that is supposed to honor the preparation for the Lord to come on the scene. And that is fully encapsulated when we look at the picture of how Jesus comes on the scene, not just in the nativity or his life, but also in his ministry. And so today we are going to look at the concept of preparing the way because God still works this way. God still makes preparations for every single one of us to meet him through the messenger. God raises up people that are sent into the community of people that they are meant to relay a message to. I'm actually doing that for you right now. I am part of God's design for some of you. He has been preparing you to come to church this Sunday morning with all of the circumstances of your life rolling through your head and your heart, and you walk in the door, and your life has been prepared for the message to reach you in a way where God is going to grab your life. And for the rest of us, for some of you need to think back to the way that God got a hold of your life. He did not come into your life randomly. He came into your life after a series of events and circumstances that he used, you now know, as preparation for you to meet him. And today we'll look at the way God prepares so that we can work out how, one, we meet him and how we continue to meet him in his preparation to be with us. And also how we can take part in the message that is just as important for us to be preparing for people in our day as it was in the days of John the Baptist. One of the lyrics of that song also said that he was a promise keeper, and that's what we see in the preparation. God is preparing the ministry of Christ, not just for his time, but it says, as it was written in the prophets. And so the gospel writer is going to combine two prophecies from Isaiah and Malachi that says, I'm sending a messenger, a voice into the wilderness, so that when the Lord comes on the scene, it will have a proper honoring for him to come on, because that's how it works when the king arrives on the scene. There's always something that happens for him to arrive so that when he gets there, people are ready to meet him. And I don't know if you guys have ever been around the preparation for someone to arrive, but it still exists in our day. I was actually just in the Congo. You guys heard some of the stories behind that. But there was an atmosphere in the Congo while we were there. They were preparing everything, getting the roads ready, nice and flattened. They were getting all of the buildings painted. They were converting one of the airstrips into a giant stage because they were expecting a person of great honor in their culture, the Pope was coming. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's something in the air and they were all ready to usher in this person of honor into their life. And in the same way, God does that with the king. There is a king coming on the scene that is going to bring in the kingdom good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the Christ, the king. And to do that, he sends his herald. He sends his messenger. And instead of fixing the roads and getting the buildings painted, he's giving us a message within the message already by saying, this is about your life. God doesn't just prepare the physical circumstances of your life. He prepares your life, your heart condition, and your mind to meet God. And this is what John the Baptist comes on to show us that this king that's coming on the scene is different. This is what it says. It says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance 
for the remission of sins. So he's not just readying the roads. He's saying to people, you better get ready because the one who is coming to take the throne for God cares more about your life than your towns. And so he calls people into the wilderness and it says that he baptizes them. I like how the New Living Translation says that. It says he baptizes people so that they could show they are turning from sin and turning towards God. There is a symbolic readying of a life that you want to actually receive God. You have to hear the message of repentance so that you can receive the gospel of salvation. And so this is just good timing as we kick off the fall. There's more people probably coming to our church now that life has settled down. And they always say, as your church gets bigger, you can add a service or you can preach about repentance and sin. So we're going to start with that option. If this is your first day at church or Calvary Boise, you picked a great week to decide whether or not you want to come to this church. Because if we're really going to get serious about the message of the gospel, the good news, there's really good news for our day and age. In a, in a world of horrible headline news, we have good news. We have to be serious about how that good news comes onto the scene. And what it says is that he preaches a message in preparation for the king of repentance. He preaches a message of repentance and remission of, here's the dirty word of our day, sin. I remember when I was first preaching, I guess I'm in a real nostalgic mood the last couple of sermons because I'm like, yeah, this is 10 years and been at my house for eight years. And when I first started preaching 11 years ago, I remember someone came up to me after a service and they gave me some helpful advice, at least some recommenda recommendations for how to maybe reach more people. And the advice was this, hey, some people don't like the word sin. It feels very like, you know, you, you, you want to welcome people in wherever they're at. And if you preach sin, they may feel like they're not welcome because it's just condemning. So say things like God wants to help you. God wants to give you hope. And I have totally appreciate sermon feedback. So keep it coming. And I appreciate his heart because what he was trying to communicate was we don't want to lose anybody. And if, if that's you this morning, I don't want to lose you, but I also want to be truthful. I want to be real. I want to preach the Bible, and when the Bible emphasizes something as an important preparation to meet Jesus, I don't want to leave it out. And so this morning, put your seatbelts on. You are all dirty little sinners. <laughs> I mean, all of you, not just the newcomers. <laughs> and it says that the gospel, to actually receive it, there is a message that comes to preach a need for the gospel. In other words, if there was no message of turning, if there's no message of repentance, which is to say, I was going far from God. I was doing things my own way, rejecting the law of God, rejecting the will of God, becoming my own God. If there was no need to turn from that kind of attitudes towards God, there is no need to receive the gospel. There's no need to be saved. Paul says of the gospel, it is the power of God to save. And yet we live in a day that is probably not unlike all of the opportunities to turn from God where we want the gospel to be the power to stay the same. To meet a God who would meet you wherever you were at and to say, you're doing great, you just need me to kind of stamp your homework so that you can get into heaven. 
And unfortunately, for those of us who don't want to be confronted with reality, that's just not true. Every single one of us, according to the word and according to just an honest look in the mirror, have done all sorts of things to prove that we actually do need salvation. And we do need a cleansing. And what baptism represents is a cleansing of the remission of sins or sins going into the water and some sort of picture of cleansing coming out of the water. And this sermon will, in more ways than one, meet us in cultural moments. And as we go through the Gospel of Mark, I'm sure we'll be able to see how this is a helpful message for our time. This morning, like I often do, I just went downtown, got a coffee, went on a little prayer walk. And this weekend is a great weekend to be thinking about the remission of sins. Because as I was walking, everywhere I went in this little downtown square... The word pride was everywhere, just, just plastered in stickers and posters, and it says pride. And to give you a preview of the Gospel of Mark, the, the message of sin was contentious as the Gospel unfolds, but the people who contended against it were a surprising audience, because we think sin, you know, you got to tell sinners they're, 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 they're dirty and they need cleansing, and then they're going to be mad at you. It was actually the religious people that were the most upset at the radical version of righteousness that Jesus brought. And in some ways, what I needed most this morning as I was praying for our city that is given over to darkness like all cities are, and for our city that is celebrating in all sorts of ways that are perverse the concept of pride, what I also needed was to understand that I am a sinner. And my chief struggle with sin is the word pride. So as I was praying, I realized that I also, in my heart for our city, had a moment with God for myself. And all of us, as we think about the time and place that God has placed us in, and we want to be like John the Baptist, messengers that bring the gospel good news that there is cleansing from the perversion of sin, we also must realize that it is for us as well that we all, this week, should be looking at the word pride as we stare in the mirror. And as we think about what God will do to cleanse our city, we should raise our hand and say, Lord, will you start with me? Will you just empty me of my pride and my sin so that as I'm praying for you to just use my life as a messenger, that I myself would be honest about the need that goes so far beyond one little parade, although they need it. It's so, so far behind one city block, although it's for them too. And I love the picture that the Gospel of Mark's painting. He says in verse 5, Then all the land of Judea, those from Jerusalem, went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, this is one of those moments where all does not necessarily mean every single person. But what is being communicated is that the message of repentance was for everyone, and the message of repentance was received by a large amount of people, people in the city of Jerusalem, people that were in the outer parts, people that were hearing that the king was on his way, and whatever their social status, whatever their city status, whatever their economic status, people were being invited into the wilderness to be confronted by the reality that they themselves needed to be humbled by the glorious God. And no matter where you're at this morning, this message 
is for you. God loves all of us enough to bring us to a place where we would be confronted with our need for salvation. One of the things that you'll notice about the Gospel of Mark, and it's coming to prepare the way for Jesus to come on the scene, is how often he calls people to the wilderness. The wilderness oftentimes is a motif of the Bible where people are transitioning from a life of sin or a life of pride and coming away and set free towards the promises of God. And so often, time and time again, God meets people in the wilderness. And I know that some of you need to hear that part of the way that God prepares people this morning, that the wilderness is part of the plan. When you feel like you don't know where you're going, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know where the the provision of God is going to come from, and you're not really quite sure what you've done with your life, you're probably in a season of wilderness. I want to share a quote with you from George MacDonald to remind us how God uses the wilderness in our life. Most of the Psalms were born in the wilderness. Most of the epistles were written in prison. The greatest poets have learned in suffering what they taught in song. When God is about to make preeminent use of a person, he puts them in the fire. You must pass through the wilderness to get to the promised land. As someone who gets to sit front row for the baptismal moment and hear the stories, it is the wilderness that calls people to God. My marriage is gone. My child has gone astray. My job is over. My money is out. My plans have been ruined. The year that I thought was going to be one way went another. And in those moments where you can no longer depend on your own plans, you have met the preparation of God for the message of the gospel. It is in the wilderness that God will meet you. Time and time and time again. The easiest way to understand or interpret the biblical meaning of the wilderness is total and utter dependence on God. That is the preparation to actually have a relationship with the coming one that will turn into the way of the Lord in your life. And there's something else that we already read that we also have to drag out of this sermon to help us understand how God prepares us, and how we respond to everything that's just been read and preached. He says that they go to the the wilderness to be baptized, and what happens? It says, for the remissions of sin at the Jordan River, and the people are confessing their sins. Confessing your sin is the beginning of you realizing that you are not your own Savior that you also qualify for all the land that needs to hear the message of repentance. And there's all sorts of human nature stuff that comes up in this because it's the, the moment where preparation meets the promise. So we're still working out some flesh and adding some spirit. One of the human nature things, it's just real about all of us, is we don't love confessing when we mess up. Have you ever noticed that? Look at all the hands that didn't go up point. I, in my study of humans right now, I've been blessed with young people in the house because they are, they're like the keys to the test. You get like the secret of all human nature is found in kids under eight. 
And so I get to just study human nature and then tell you all about it. One of the human nature studies I'm doing right now is for my three-year-old Tommy. And he is the picture of how difficult it is to be humbled enough by our own sin to confess. Because I leave him with a fork in the road. And in all of the ways that he is learning how to follow Jesus, he's very violent right now. And so we're working that out of him. He's a slapper and a hitter and a smasher. And I get a lot of police reports coming across my desk of something he's done. And I always give him the option. I say, okay, did you do this? And he's like, nope. I'm like, okay, wrong. You did. I know you did. <laughs> Will you say sorry? And because I don't know why he does this. Maybe he thinks that if he's not careful, he'll actually accidentally say sorry. He looks at me and covers his mouth. I'm like, bro, the words won't come out unless you want them to. You don't have to cover your mouth. But it's, it's his picture of our hearts. All he has to do is say, sorry, we'll make amends, and then I will allow him to continue down the road of sanctification. If he doesn't say sorry, he goes to timeout. And wouldn't you know that human nature chooses timeout over confession? All the time. All the time. He's sitting in timeout with his arms crossed, his mouth over, his hand over his mouth, and I'm like, bro, all you have to do is say sorry. And now I present to you your life, our lives. All we have to do, the preparation of the work is laid. You've come and the word tells you how to repent. John the Baptist is very clear. People ask him how to repent. He's like, stop doing the thing you were doing that was wrong. That's essentially what he says. If he's got, you've got two tunics, someone's cold, give him one tunic. You know to do that. If you're a tax collector, stop robbing people. You know to do that. If you're a soldier, be happy with your wages. Most of us know the person or the thing in our life that needs confession over. And what do we do? I would rather have a cold war in the bedroom than confess my own pride to my wife or husband. I would rather have a neighbor that I can't stand than confess to God that I'm so prideful that I'm not loving my neighbor. I'd rather have a distant relative that I no longer talk to than confess. And what happens? We're put in spiritual timeout. There are people that God is calling into this place this morning that would rather stay on the sidelines because they do not want to confess that they had a rough week or month or year or last decade. So they're like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I just feel judged if I come in. Here's the promise for all of us in preparation to actually follow in the way of the Lord. That's the goal, whether you're day one this morning or whether you're decade three. The goal for this study and for this season of our life is to be radical followers of the way of Christ. And to start, we have to confess the way we're not doing that. And just as surely as my son comes out of timeout and he kind of humbly comes up to me, he's like, I'm sorry. I'm like, you mean it, son? He's like, yes. I'm like, good enough. Get out there and go crush it. Look what it says in the word about confession. And as we go through this series, we're going to find moments where I say, this is the way of the Lord. Here's the way of the Lord. It says in 1 John. Chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You're a sinner, and now you're a liar as well. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin, sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the way of the cross. That is the way of salvation. If we confess, God has made a way to be faithful to forgive us today. No condemnation for those of you who are in Christ. You come here with the dust of the world and you still needing sanctification. And you come this morning, you say, Lord, cleanse me by the blood of the lamb. Faithful to forgive. And the other promise is that he's just. 
He doesn't randomly forgive. Sin is dealt with. He has the right to forgive us. The cross means that sin, all of our sin, has been dealt with. And when he sees your sin, he puts it on the cross. He says, you're forgiven, and the sin is dealt with. He's just to forgive. And that is something that we now, as we start walking towards the way of the Lord, from our sanctuary to the streets, we are forgiving people. We are people who believe in the power of God's forgiveness for our life. So no matter what is under the hood of your heart, you can come into the light and say, Lord, you know who I really am, and I'd rather be confessing in the light than on time out in the dark. And we're faithful and just to be forgiven. And then what happens when we hit the streets? The way of the Lord is faithful forgiveness. You want to make a revolution in our time? Learn the way, the power of forgiveness in all of the dividing lines that turn into separation and bitterness, hatred, anger, there will be a uprising of people who learn the power of forgiveness in the way of the Lord. I'm hoping that that's us. I hope, like all things, we start by just practicing on each other. For the guy who got cut off in the parking lot earlier, I am so sorry I did that to you. I'm glad that you made it in. For those of us who just need to work out little things in our marriages and our families, it's like, I want, to, I want to do right by you because I want to follow in the way of the Lord. And in doing so, we now have an atmosphere of people who are set free, of people who can be forgiven, to forgive. And now when we do our prayer walks and we look out and we see a city that is lost in darkness, we know the answer that they need the gospel, they need to know that there is a God that will cleanse them. And we can be agents of that. And part of this is going to come in the way that the message unfolds to who the messengers are, who we are to each other as messengers of the good news, who we are to the people that God is sending us into the wilderness to reach. Says all, it says in verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So in verse 6, we get a reason for people of this day to be excited. There was a prophecy that anyone who, who followed the oracles of God, they knew what was on the horizon for the plans of God, there was a prophecy that someday the spirit of Elijah would come and prepare the way for the Lord. And Mark, in this really immediate gospel, we're going to use the word immediately and action-packed a lot, he doesn't mess with words. So if he's giving a description of something, it's for, it's for a reason. This description, clothed with camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, is one, he's a wild guy. He's in the wilderness. He's living the life. He's going to where God is sending people. And that should be inspiring to us. But the other thing is that it gives us a complete parallel of a description that we get from Elijah in 2 Kings, it says that Elijah was a hairy man with a belt around his waist. So what Mark is doing is saying, this is what you've been waiting for. He, he's stirring the rumors or the, the ideas or something in the atmosphere that were really close to Christ coming. And I, I love this scene for our time because there's something stirring in our time. Jesus says that he, he looked out, the word says Jesus looked out and he saw sheep scattered without a shepherd. If you want to see sheep scattered without a shepherd, go walk around this weekend. You're going to see a lot of people who are confused about life. They're looking for answers, and they have no one 
guiding them with a shepherd's heart toward life and life more abundant. And he says, when you see that, there's something in the air. There's a harvest coming. Many of us look at what's happening in our world right now, and we can see there's something in the air. Jesus says, you know how to read the sky. Don't you know how to read the end times? Don't you know that I'm getting close? This is what's happening in the gospel of Mark, and this is what's happening in our time now. Get ready, because he is almost here. And the messenger is pointing everyone to the one who is on the way. And this is exactly what's going to happen in the transition for John the Baptist to Jesus. As the story unfolds next week, Jesus is going to be on the scene, and we're not going to hear much about John the Baptist anymore. And that's the goal. As the one who is being prophesied, the preparation is for Christ. And this is what John the Baptist now says. And he preached, saying, There one that comes after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. That, that's a picture of the, the bondservant or the slave going to the master and untying his shoe. And John the Baptist says, The one that I'm preparing the way for, I'm not even worthy for that. The job that's reserved for the bondservant, the slave, and the lowest on the totem pole, I'm lower than that. The preparation for Christ is, is like no other person coming on the scene. That's what we're waiting for. There will be no messenger that compares to Christ. There will be no pastor or prophet or someone that rises on the scene to say, he's coming, that will ever compare to the person of Christ. I was grateful this year to be paired with Pastor Abil. If you don't know Pastor Abil, he's actually preaching right now in our Arabic service. Amazing brother. I love having him on the pastoral team. He's our wise counsel, gray-haired pastor. So he's just, if you guys need someone in that age group, I've never found out his actual age, but he's, he's the seasoned pastor among us. And we were paired, and as every person came into the water, he asked a really important question. In line with what we see as a preparation to meet Christ, as you're ready to go into the water to symbolize your death and resurrection aligning with Christ, Pastor Bill says, do you believe you're a sinner? That was the first confession he asked for every person. I said, yes. And then he'd done something I'd never had happen before, but then he looked and he said, do you believe Pastor Tucker's a sinner too? And I was like, dang, bro. <laughs> I mean, it's true. And they were like, yeah, I guess I do. I mean, definitely. And I love that he did that because what can happen sometimes is that you can listen to the messenger and you can somehow elevate them to be pretty close to the one that's coming. Have you guys seen that in our day and age where people stand and they say, Christ, and elevate Christ, and Jesus died for your sin, and God loves you, and I am also pretty amazing. Or you can elevate the church, or the church brand, or the singers, or the worship leaders, or the teachers, or the people. And Jesus says, of people born of women, meaning before you're born again, if all you got is physical life, there's no one better than John the Baptist. I think that's fair to say. John the Baptist came and literally passed the baton of ministry to Christ. There will be no one. If John the Baptist isn't worthy to be a slave, there is no one that will ever compare to the glory of Christ. And if you're looking for a way to measure whether or not you're, you're being fed well, how well does the teacher point you to Christ and get out of the way? How well do we do that with the messengers or the people that we are messengers for? I want my kids to love God more than me. I want my wife to love Christ more than me. 
I want my neighbor, I want every single one of you to elevate Christ in a way that would make me completely diminish. I'm not worthy of any comparison to Christ, and no one is, which is gospel good news. There has been no one that you have ever met that is reflecting the glory of God that compares to the majesty of Christ. And if we want to live in a day and age where we see a revival of the way of God, we need to see a revival in the elevation of Christ and the reducing of human praise. If John the Baptist says, go, follow him and get me out of the way, every church leader, pastor, teacher, person in your life should fall to their knees in humility. And he gives us a great reminder of that in the Gospel of John. He kind of paints a picture. And so since we're moving so fast from the life of uh, John the Baptist, I thought we could share one more moment where John the Baptist teaches us this beautiful picture of how we are to relate to the majesty of Christ in our lives. John chapter 3. You can turn there in your Bible. It'll be on the screen. He says, He who is the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase. I must decrease. He's painting a picture of the wedding feast, a a common picture for us to understand what God is doing in preparation for his return. And John the Baptist says, imagine that you have the friend of the bridegroom. In their day, the best man was really the wedding coordinator before they made that an industry, which we're grateful for. And anyone who does that, I'm so grateful you do that. But he said, imagine the the best man, he makes all the preparations, lays out the table, lays out the food. He gets everyone in order. He's got the music ready. He's got the wine ready. He's got the the whole thing ready. And all he needs is for the bridegroom and the groom to come in and join the feast. He says, when that moment happens and you've been to the wedding, that's the moment. You do not show up to a wedding just to judge the decorations and the food and the chairs and the balloons and all the things that we love about weddings. The moment we're all waiting for is when the bride and groom come together and they're there. And he says, when I see that, when I hear his voice... That's my joy. That's why I did all of the preparation is for that moment. And that's what we are supposed to see in all of this. Pastors and worship leaders and servants of Jesus are just getting the table ready. And when he comes on the clouds, it's like that's what we were waiting for. But could you imagine if it was the opposite? Could you imagine you go to a wedding and there's like a time for a toast. and The best man stands up and he's like, bride and groom are awesome, but I want to tell you about myself. I really worked hard on this, the food, and he tells you the recipes, and he tells you about all the planning, and he tells you uh, how he's amazing at wedding planning. We would all be like, you're crazy. And the same would be true if any of us went to a wedding, and we were like, man, this is a great wedding. Brad and group are cool. Who planned this thing? This is amazing. Can we just actually focus on them? John the Baptist is saying, that would be crazy. I'm doing everything I'm doing so that when he comes and I hear his voice, I am so excited. And when that moment happens, the good preparation work, he says, now I want to get out of the way. Now I want him on high. And that is our calling. Our calling is to say, God, I'm living for the joy of hearing your voice in my ear, of seeing your face, face to face. That will be the completion of the joy. And I understand I am accepted because of nothing I've done, but because of your finished work on the cross, you've given me remission of sins. You've cleansed me. I'm in. 
I want you to be increased, and I want to decrease. And we're going to, as we do, and we're going to do this throughout the series, we're going to have a symbol of us accepting that reality, that we are part of the wedding feast, not because of us, but because of the preparation that was laid before we were ever born to give us access to the God who freely forgives and justly sets us free because of the cross. But it's important to remember this is a symbol. We get the bread, we get the cup, and we're reminded of the power that God has given us to be accepted. But it's a symbol. Verse 8, indeed, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Baptism water. Just water. I have nothing to give you if I do not have the power of God freely offered for you to receive freely. The Boise River is just water. This building is just a building. These chairs, there's nothing special, anointed about anything that we do except for this reality. The message and the word and the song and the praise and the sanctuary comes alive because God's spirit is freely given. If I preach with the power of the Holy Spirit, I can actually speak to you on behalf of God and he can reach you. If you read the word with the power of the Holy Spirit, you can hear his voice and know his way for your life. But you can get baptized by the power of water alone ten times and nothing will change. It is a symbol of your life, death and risen and receiving and open to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. If we want to see our generation reach the lost, the confused, political, sexual, ethical confusion, we can't change them. I can't make a law that will tell people how to live their life and then have them abide by it. And it won't work for your life either. But what we can do is be empowered by the Holy Spirit so our words have power. We can be empowered by the Holy Spirit so our actions have power. And we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit so that just as this promise was fulfilled on Pentecost, God's Spirit would be poured out. And those who have a heart of stone would be turned into a heart of flesh. Those who are dead in sins would be made alive. And it won't be because of this. It will be because of the Holy Spirit. This generation... Church age, religious age, Christian age, we all need a revival of the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything else is just a symbol. And so when we take this bread and this cup, you pray for the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Pray that you would not be someone who is going through the motions and you open your Bible and you sing the songs and you hold the cup and then you go through the water baptism and it's like nothing changes. Jesus says, parents, even evil fathers know how to make their, give their kids food if they're hungry. If they're hungry for bread, you don't give them stone. He says, how much more will God give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him for it? Ask God for the power of the Holy Spirit and see what happens. So for those of us who believe day one or decade three, we're going to take communion now to say to God, I believe. And I'll leave you with 
the final words of John the Baptist until we get to him later in the Gospels. It says in John chapter 3, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I preach to you a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and everyone who believes you hold the cup with power and you will have life in his name. 